Hello and welcome to the Public Health Insight Podcast. We will be engaging in interactive discussion of the latest public health issues affecting you and your communities all around the world. My name is Sully and I am joined by four of my friends. Ben. LaShawn. Gordon. And Will. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. So in this episode, we'll be discussing a commentary from The Lancet titled Scientific and Ethical Bases for Social Distancing Interventions Against COVID-19. This article is in response to a paper published in The Lancet Infectious Diseases by Ku and colleagues, and it assessed the effects of social distancing interventions on the COVID-19 burden in Singapore. Well, you might ask, why Singapore of all countries? Well, Singapore is an interesting context because it was among the first batch of countries to report imported cases and has been relatively successful in preventing and reducing community transmission. Using an influenza epidemic simulation model, Ku and colleagues assessed the potential consequences of specific social distancing measures, which were quarantine, school closures, and workplace distancing. On the transmission dynamics of COVID-19, The observation was that the highest reduction in COVID-19 cases was achieved under a combination of all three measures. Interestingly, the commentator noted that although the scientific basis for these interventions may be robust, ethical and social considerations of these interventions are very complex. It is important to note that such social distancing policies must be aware of potential biases it may have against any population groups. Also, uh, policymakers must recognize that social, economic, and cultural injustices have been perpetuated in the name of public health and thus learn and avoid these historic mistakes. So as... COVID-19 sweeps across the globe. Countries and territories are quickly reacting to stop and prevent uh, future spread and further spread of the virus. Social distancing has emerged as an effective measure to help flatten the curve, reduce cases, and overall take the pressure from our our healthcare systems. Aside from the immediate health-related risks associated with COVID-19, such as deaths and severe respiratory failures, there's a plethora of social and cultural consequences. What do you guys think are some of these consequences? For a lot of people, um, they have not experienced anything like this, just staying at home for extended periods of time, maybe not being able to physically interact with people. Um, But one thing I was thinking about is that how it's kind of important to remember that people are not coming into this with the same level of like physical or mental health. So with that said, some people may be um, already dealing with issues of anxiety, depression, loneliness, substance abuse, um, or other health problems, which make them even more vulnerable to um, being isolated in any situation. So in this case, then what would be an alternative solution? Is, Is there a different way of doing it to mitigate these risks then? I kind of mentioned this on the last episode, but it's like just making sure you stay in contact with people. So like that could be through texting, emailing, using apps like Facebook or Skype, or a lot of people are even using Zoom now. So I think we also have to consider 
kind of the time in history we're in where we have access to all these technologies so that even though we're not physically present with people, we have the capability or not all of us have the capability, but a lot of us do have the capability to still see and hear our friends and families from a distance. I think adding to that is um, more along the lines with Gordon's question of like, if they're going to enforce quarantine measures, I think the messaging should also provide examples of like how to still keep in contact with people. For example, like you said, LaShawn, not everyone would have the capacity to do the things that we often take for granted, you know, like video calls a friend or go on Skype or all that stuff. Like people of of, uh, probably an older generation who are not as tech savvy may need additional information of how to access this, right? So I think that messaging should also be clear if um, governments are like, hey, you have this social distance, you have to go into the quarantine and isolation. I think that's a missed opportunity. Yeah. And, you know, I think we all face a lot of uncertainty with when this um, quarantine period will end. Um, and I kind of did a bit of research and I kind of looked into some of the studies about social isolation. And what I found, and this is not to scare anyone, this is just to just kind of say what's in the literature about being in social isolation for long periods of time. Being in social isolation for longer periods of time um, come with the risks of higher um, risks for heart disease, depression, dementia, and even death. But with this in mind, um, many of the social kind of um, contact you can make with people during this time, so using Skype, texting, calling people, it acts as a buffer against these negative effects. Can I challenge you on that for a minute? Sure. So I was there was in the states when, um, as you as everyone knows, schools have been closed in a lot of parts of the world, right? So some uh, some um, jurisdictions or states or counties, right? So their school systems have been moving to an online platform to basically ensure that kids still get their education while they're not allowed to go to school. But what they were finding is that they there's some low income families that don't have the infrastructure in their homes to essentially deliver these online courses. And then you get into these whole equity issues. So while we're making recommendations about how to stay connected with their families, some people don't realistically don't have those tools to, to mm-hmm. do that. So then which brings us to the point of this, this whole episode um, where social distancing um, has a lot of ethical consequences as well as equity consequences. And that's something that maybe is not being addressed. I don't know what you guys think. No, I agree. I don't think it's being addressed at all. Not that I've heard. There's there's a lot of vulnerable populations out there, such as the homeless people, incarcerated individuals, the older population or disabled individuals, disabled individuals, or even undocumented migrants. These people are at these kind of risk where, you know, policies that government put into place may disproportionately affect them and they may not have the resources to maybe be in a safe place or even have the opportunity to establish social contact with people through um, the technologies I mentioned earlier. Yeah, and that's a very good point because when policymakers are designating essential services and deciding which services should be opened or closed, it is very important that they ensure these closures do not disproportionately affect the marginalized and those populations at risk. 
For example, in certain provinces across Canada, there were cities where they considered closing liquor stores. And this would have been a very terrible decision from a public health perspective because it goes against the public health concept of harm reduction and can create another set of public health challenges during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Will, would you be able to just maybe explain the concept of um, harm reduction to our audience? So one of those kind of services would be something like the um, safe injection sites, right? Right. Maybe I can chip in here. So the on tagging on to the safe injection site point, the the reason or the 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 reason harm reduction strategies have been implemented in some cases is because um, when you have people who are um, addicted to drugs or habitual drug users that use uh, IV drugs, um, in some cases they share needles and reuse needles. So in this case, you can transmit bloodborne diseases and this put uh, this vulnerable population at higher risk of needing to be hospitalized and, and even death. So in this case, a harm reduction strategy, as weird as it might sound to a lot of people who might not be familiar, it would be to give them clean needles so that at least that problem is averted. So a question, in light of what's happening how would you account for uh, these harm reduction programs and the accessibility to them? I do know that um, I think it was Doug Ford that was recently um, holding a press conference. He did mention that these safe injection sites will be um, open and still running during this um, period of time. So that's just, to, I guess, one measure that's in place to make sure that um, individuals who use these facilities um are not just shut out of them because of what's going on with COVID-19. An interesting spin on this topic as well is that we're talking about the physical sites themselves for harm reduction and the inability of people to access them due to quarantine and whatnot. But when we're talking about addiction and the people who it affects, I think with the whole social isolation aspect of it, we're kind of missing the conversation of how social connection is also used to beat addiction. Like if we look at Portugal, who decriminalized illicit substances and then they brought in uh, measures to help people, you know, connect with society, these uh, individuals who undergo addictions, social quarantine and isolation completely goes against that, right? There's more pressures on them to go for these illicit drugs. Hmm. And then if you take away the harm reduction sites as well, I mean, they're in a worse situation than ever. Like, how are we able to support them? Like, for example, if we're talking about alcohol, one of the criticisms is that the LCBO is open. And then you could obviously just take a joking stab at that and be like, ha, we still need alcohol despite us, you know, having to close down these non-essential businesses. Yeah, I mean, you could look at that perspective. But at the same time, we should also look at this subset of the population that literally has nothing anymore. Mm. Cannabis stores are open too. Yeah, exactly. They can't go to their AA meetings. They can't hang out with their friends who have you know, suffer through the same experiences that they have, that they lose that sense of relation, right? So that's probably a significant consequence to this. And to add on to that, I mean, these are uh, people suffering from addiction are usually people who already don't have the infrastructure to deal with this, uh, with social distancing, mm. like the technological infrastructure because of, you know, their economic yeah. status. Yeah. Yeah, it goes back to the point that Gordon made. 
So just to bring it back to mental health, because it's all mental health and substance use and addictions are all interrelated. So one of the articles I think Ben had shared in our group was um, they're in, I mean, it's happening everywhere, but particularly in England or the UK, um, people who are hospitalized for uh, COVID-19 who are, you know, getting worse and worse and worse on what respirators, they're not able to have a family member visit them in a lot of cases. So what's mm. happening now in you know across the world is a lot of people are dying alone. And there's a lot of toll that takes on the family of the deceased person. So that that's a whole that's another um aspect to, to this social distancing thing that we have to consider. Definitely. I also want to get into maybe um we kind of um are seeing in the news more and more of um, profiteering and companies raising their prices of essential goods or, um, yeah, essential goods. Um, how do you think that impacts um, individuals of low, lower socioeconomic status? That's a really good point, LaShawn. I, th- I believe that price gouging definitely affects individuals who are of lower SES more than those of higher socioeconomic status. So let's take this hypothetical um, scenario as an example, right? So for example, if a store was pricing a bottle of hand sanitizer at 30 or $40 and someone of higher SES, if they came into the store looking for necessary supplies because they have the money or are more willing to pay this increased price, now they can buy it and they can take it home and use it. But for someone who's a, who's of a lower SES, they may have a lot of struggle with this decision because not only do they have to account for food, they also need to account for rent and other essential services or healthcare products, which given their lower SES, they might not have the capabilities or the resources to be able to buy everything. Another, another thing that... Um in, and, in, and I know in Windsor in particular, Windsor, Ontario in Canada, and probably some other cities as well, the public transit system is being shut down because that is can be a hotspot for crowding. But um, often people, there's a lot of people that rely on these not only to go to work because a lot of workplaces are closed, obviously, but to also go to get the stuff that they need, whether it's groceries and things like that, who maybe can't afford uh, delivery services from, you know, those that skip the dishes and other apps like that. So that aspect also uh, affects their ability to carry out their daily life when social distancing measures are, because there's no bans in place for, oh, you can't have five people in your car or you, you see what I mean? Whereas, and, you know, people, and that's for people who can afford a car, whereas public transit systems are getting shut down. And, you know, there's a lot of people who rely on that to for their well-being. So I just wanted to point that out. Definitely. And uh, I also think that a lot of the sports that is not going on anymore, so like the NBA is closed um, or postponed, NFL, NHL, a lot of um, a lot of people actually like use that as a way of coping, you know. So with that going down, it, people are going to have to temporarily go without that to help them get through certain things. 
you know what I was wondering too, not to get too dark, right? But I'm wondering too, we're talking about, okay, just daily essentials of life, right? But what if, what if mm. we come to a point where um, we're starting to look like Italy, where our healthcare system is being overrun mm-hmm. and our healthcare pro- um, professionals now have to make decisions on who to save and who not to save. Um, if, mm. you know, for example, if you're, you know, people in poverty tend to have worse health outcomes in general before, you know, even before COVID-19. So now when, if, if, you know, if person A and person B come into the hospital at the same time, and there's only one bed or one respirator, you almost wonder if that's going to play into the decision on who to save, because if, if they have an underlying medical condition or health mm. status that makes them less likely to survive. Now they were dis were were not discriminating, but they're gonna be disproportionately affected by these health outcomes. So I just wanted to point that out. You know what? Let's add on to that point is that you said that not to discriminate, but I think it's exactly that. Like even if an individual comes in from a lower socioeconomic status, like there is already significant discrimination against those individuals in the healthcare system. Right. It doesn't it doesn't matter if you have a more complicated uh, health status profile. For example, you have different comorbidities An individual and in, a physician or a clinician may look at that and be like, you know, that's a tough call. Maybe someone with less morbid comorbidities would be an easier case to save. Right. That may be the decision that one faces. But before they even come through the door, before they even get through the first like initial five minutes of that appointment, I think the discrimination of the healthcare system has already put that person as an event disadvantage, which is shown in the literature, right? So you have the quarantine putting pressures on individuals. Then you have already existing problems that we had in our structures, putting pressures on individuals. Everything turns out to be much exacerbated by the social distancing. So as we can see, um, as policymakers are often put into these difficult situations when deciding whether to implement these measures or not, whether when it's the right time to kind of start having these lockdowns, when to emphasize social distancing interventions. Um, I think it's also important to recognize just how difficult it is to decide what is considered an essential service that will be open mm-hmm. during these times, right? Because just I, I feel like that list that we see of what's deemed essential is changing every day. Mm-hmm. Sometimes these services are open. And then public up public uproar, a lot of comments. You know, they decided to close it again, and it's just, I feel like it's such a a minefield to navigate. Mm. Right. Wonder if you guys have any comments about I that. There's two. There's two points that I see to it. Is that if you keep it extremely open at first, then it's easier to kind of cut things down that you find that are non-essential over time due to like public opinion or just reevaluating, versus keeping things. Uh, completely um, narrow and then asking people to open up again. Do you know what I mean? Like it's easier to go from big to small versus small to big. Yeah, it's less of a shock. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. Imagine like you're deemed non-essential, you go home, you go through all these quarantine procedures, a week later your boss calls like, hey, never mind, you got to come back. Like what is that? That's going to get so many people pissed off. And then the second thing that I think people don't appreciate is that there's a lot of supply chain associated with just one thing like for example groceries are essential what does that mean that means trucking is essential so the groceries have to get there somewhere that means mechanics are essential to take care of the maintenance of the trucks 
et cetera, and et cetera, right? So it's never one isolated factor or facet of our society. Everything's connected. So when we hear the list of, oh, these are going to be all the essential things and you're expecting four or five things, in reality, it's going to be 30 because 30 things keep the five things running, right? So an interesting kind of discussion that I've kind of I noticed is that in the province of Ontario, the construction sector is considered an essential service because mm-hmm. the premier um, announced that you know, housing is an essential aspect of having optimal health. And so there are a lot of families who um, prior to this pandemic, you know, they were expecting to move into a new place or you know, new condominiums or buildings or were being built. And so the premier has gone forward with allowing these construction companies to continue um, working in these settings. But there's been a lot of backlash from the mm-hmm. actual um, workers and the individuals involved in this sector, yeah. citing that they're actually being put at a much higher risk to getting COVID. Yeah. Com- right? Yeah. Have um, you guys heard anything else about that? Anyone want to share anything? I did see that the construction workers didn't really have a, a situation that was conducive to ensuring good health for them and to minimize spread. I know that there is issues of clean water supplies, washroom sanitation issues, and just issues that you really don't want to, you know, be around at in this period of time, especially. That's a paradoxical problem because construction workers are necessary for maintaining all the infrastructure we have. But at the same right. time, they might be affected as in they would go into people's homes and houses that might be actually affected by the uh, by COVID-19 and expose themselves to, to that harm as well. So, so do you think you have to make the distinction between construction workers working on like a job site, like making new um, buildings or trade workers who are exposed to more person-person contact by going into people's homes? Yeah, likely because... Yeah, the highest risk is when there's a human inter uh, right. person to person interaction. So like plumbers and like furnace and electricians and stuff like that. Yeah, right. And carpenters, yeah, carpenters. and all, yeah, all of that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, like for example, I I browse Reddit a lot, and then I see a lot of um, pictures of people who had remodeling jobs being done during the time of quarantine. Right. So they'll have half their mm-hmm. house ripped apart. And they're dependent on all these infrastructures for water, gas, heat, and the job's like half done. Like they don't have anything at this point. And then they're trying to advocate for these workers to come in and then it becomes all hectic because the workers don't want to come in. But then these individuals don't have basic necessities and they're in a worse spot now because of isolation. So it's a tricky situation, right? Yeah. And like any decision we arrive at is going to affect people one way or another. Either positively right. or negatively. Yeah, I, I do also think that bringing this back a bit, I think that, you know, the lack of people actually taking this seriously, um, the social distancing measures um, and the quarantine seriously, I think um, it also will maybe affect the credibility of like health authorities, political leaders and institutions. Because although they're, um, you know, they're advocating for all these um, public health measures to be taken in place. And it's no doubt affecting so many people and changing their everyday life. If all of a sudden um, we have these groups of people not listening or, 
you know, not following following the rules, you might see a spike in cases of COVID-19. And when people kind of see the spike and saying, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm social distancing, we're all social distancing, everyone's doing it, it may be perceived that it's not actually working. So in mm-hmm. turn, it'll come back and maybe affect the credibility of these public health authorities and political leaders who are suggesting to do these things. So how can we like reconcile these two things? Right, you're saying because the the effects aren't felt immediately, right? That's yeah, kind of exactly. what you're getting at. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah, and it's, it seems like this whole issue depends on how long this will go on for. Because even if we put a deadline on, say, how long the social distancing should continue for, maybe the situation uh, becomes worse and worse, and we're just postponing that deadline uh, further and further. And there, there is no resolve to the whole issue. So um, what do you guys think about that? I think that goes back to last episode's point is that we have to have some sort of financial consequence to it because everyone has a breaking point in terms of patience, you know? Like you can only be in isolation for so long. And if you're following the news and you're getting updates that like cases are still going up, you're going to be like, hey, screw it. I might just go out because it's not helping, right? Is that kind of what you're trying to exactly. get at? Yeah. One strategy for this is to communicate the information to the general public, right? In a, in a way that they can understand. Um, it's reminding them that these social distancing measures that are being put into place, the effects of them aren't going to be felt tomorrow. We're putting these in place so that in two weeks, in three weeks, cases don't spike. Right. And I think right. certain news outlets or certain um, you know, briefings um, by politicians, policymakers, they mentioned this. And, it, and I find it very important that they do mention it, that right. the cases that we are seeing right now are results of exposures two, three weeks ago and before we implemented these social distancing measures. Yeah, Thanks. it's it's especially hard because there's, the population in Canada is so big, right? And you want to implement measures that are specific to your community, your province, um, or your jurisdiction, right? So it's just important that policy makers and officials just maintain the public's trust by using evidence-based interventions that are transparent and using fact-based communication while doing so. But, but to counter that, I mean... There's always been a distrust of science prior to this whole COVID thing, despite bringing out evidence and fact base. You know, science was sneered at prior to this. So it's only because we have mass panic or that people have suddenly become more trusting of individuals. Look at the anti-vax population. You could throw facts and evidence at them. And regardless of that, they're not going to listen to you. But now they've been relatively quiet. Right? Yeah. I would say um, on the credibility and scientific community thing, um, Will and I always talk about uh, Governor Cuomo from the state of New York. He he literally has, like, I swear the press conference is like 90 minutes long every day. And the man will go through, <laughs> he has like a PowerPoint that he puts up on the screen. Like, you can watch it on TV. And he goes through like everything to explain it in like the simplest way possible. And he talks very slow. And like, what I've found, like, he's he's gotten a lot of positive reviews because... When he's talking, he says, okay, I'm going to give you the facts. And when he's done with the facts, he says, okay, and then these are my opinions of how what's going to happen. So then people know, Hmm. okay, this is based on the scientific advice that he got. 
And then this is his maybe wishful thinking at the end. But he makes a clear distinction between the two of them. So, so do you think that the messaging has to be more clear? Because it's been a bit confusing because we had first flatten the curve. Then we had plank the curve. Right. I don't know what is what else is going to happen to this curve at the next point. So then, like I know what you're talking about, and I know they're introducing the whole concept of maintaining your bubble and don't break into other people's bubble now. But I think that's just a result of of this being an ongoing, um, evolving process. And right. so, and mm-hmm. so to keep up with that, um, they're evolving new measures and new strategies to kind of combat that. And like. In terms of kind of mixed messaging, it's kind of hard because, um, as you noticed with some of the um, briefings by Justin Trudeau, um, every day he seems to come out with a new measure that he wants to put in place. And I think that's kind mm-hmm. of difficult, right? So every day we're getting this, yeah. Yeah. Um, these new measures in, that are going to be put on place on X date. But I think that kind of contributes to the confusion. But, yeah, on the positive side, though. Uh, gradually implementing these uh, measures and interventions is actually, you know, pre- prevents mass panic, prevents like, mass yeah. panic, and it, like just general shock. Yeah. So, but what I wanted to say, what I wanted to say though, is back to Will's point about. I think the problem is there's been, and like again, I am not the one making these decisions, and I imagine talking about them is easier than being in the room making the decisions. So I want to put Mm -hmm. that out there. But I think one of the problem is I think there's been a lot of miscalculations along the way. Um, You're relying on people to make the right decisions, potentially jeopardizing the lives and health of other people and tying it back to what Will had mentioned about, you know, when when we're seeing today, for example, today is, you know, March 28th. So when we see things like, oh, there were 1000 cases today. As Will said, those cases could have been around or symptomatic as long as 14 days ago. So when when we're reacting to today's news, if you're in politics or decision making, you're already two weeks behind. So I feel like when measures are put in place, oh, tomorrow we didn't see people doing the social distancing. That should have been done two weeks ago. So you're always going to be you're always going to be behind. And I think maybe there is a little balancing act that they were trying to do with not completely destroying the economy. Maybe there were other considerations that they had taken place. So I think maybe that was why, you know, maybe they weren't as forthcoming from the beginning, throwing all their guns at it or why they haven't used their full legislative power from the the beginning. So I think, yeah, yeah, it seems their decisions are more, um, reactive than preventative. Right, right, because you know what I mean? Like, I again, I, I'm not the one making decisions, but when when they say, oh, we're making decisions on a minute-to-minute basis, it shouldn't be. The, 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 what, you're, what you're getting briefed on today, and I know it sounds like some futuristic weird movie, but what you're getting briefed mm-hmm. on today is something that happened two weeks ago. So you have to foreshadow two weeks into the future and make a decision based on that, not that, oh, today we had a thousand cases. That shouldn't be the case. So that's that's one thing I disagree mostly with how it's been handled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. So today we discussed kind of some of the social, economic, cultural, ethical considerations and consequences that might come from measures such as social distancing. But... I just had a question I wanted to 
throw it out to you guys as well as our listeners at home. Um, you guys don't have to give me an answer right now. You can if you want. But it is that should we, I guess we as countries that are dealing with COVID-19 right now, should we follow what some of the places like Singapore and South Korea are doing by moving from a defensive approach of social distancing to a more offensive approach of doing intensive testing, quarantining, contact tracing, etc. Because I named these two countries because they are examples of countries that have not implemented a national shutdown, right, right. but they seem to have contained the situation for now. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what do you guys think? So I'll I'll just go first real quickly. So like you mentioned, there's the key component early on in a pandemic outbreak is testing because you, in order to avoid um, wholesale shutdowns, you ideally want to know everyone that is sick or potentially going to get sick, right? So if these and what we've heard from Canada and the United States and other countries is testing was a major problem early on. So the decisions they, and again, we talked about being two weeks behind. So the decisions that are being made now have to be prevent something from happening two weeks from now. I think if it was to be a point to ponder, I think we would just have to give a bit more um, description as to what Singapore and South Korea specifically did. Because like people might be, yeah. people might be asking, "Hey, I heard Justin Trudeau say they have been doing intensive testing, they have been quarantining, they have been doing contract tracing." So why what is aren't we already doing that? Yeah, like what contextually has Singapore have in their infrastructure that may be different than Canada is what I, my my brain is getting to. Like for example, Singapore to me when I think of it is a super strict um, right. country that focuses on being clean. Like, you spit out gum there, right. and you're getting fined like $1,000 so, or so something. So, just, sorry, sorry, just, don't, I don't mean to hijack. Yeah, you know, guys. So, the, as Will was mentioning before, there, what were the three measures again? Close, quarantine. Intense testing, quarantining, contact tracing. There we go. So, that that's your answer right there. The Early on in the, in the outbreak, all of these measures were explored and implemented in a, in a multiphasic way. Whereas in the other countries, it was more reactive. Oh, let's do this now. Oh, there's 2,000 cases. Okay, let's use measure two. Because remember, the point of this whole study that we're talking about is that when implemented together, you have the greatest effect. And in other places mm-hmm. in the world, it was not implemented at the same time. Thank you very much, Thank Prime you. Minister Trudeau. Thank you. And if you're listening... Come home. <laughs> Come home. Oh, is that what he said? He has another one. Let me be very clear. If you've just returned from abroad, oh. you must stay home and isolate for 14 days. This is not a suggestion. But even that, like, you ideally would have wanted to implement this when you're repatriating people. Yeah. Or when you're telling people, because now it's like, oh, you're reacting. You're always reacting, always reacting. Okay, you heard that a thousand people didn't go. Now we put this law in. You need to anticipate any at any time in history, you never have 100% of people that listen. Never. It never happens. Yeah. Never Never happens. So maybe that's part of why certain countries were more successful too, right? Maybe in Singapore. South Korea, China, at some point, it just wasn't a choice anymore. It's like, you go mm-hmm. this or you have penalties. 
So th- this this episode focused on some of the unintended consequences of social distancing, but we want to emphasize that social distancing is an effective measure to prevent the spread of COVID-19, and we all encourage everyone to do their part to ensuring that the population can stay healthy. Cheers. Remember, public health is a field of inquiry and an arena for action to improve lives one population at a time. This has been the Public Health Insight Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please drop us a like and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your podcast platform of choice. You can also send us your questions, comments, and suggestions for discussion topics at thepublichealthinsight.gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.